This will be the eighth in a series of sermons on the entire counsel of God. It will be the second on the subject of the scriptures as the word of God. And we want to speak on that subject again today, the authority of scripture. Invite your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17 will be our text that we'll begin at. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now here last in our last assembly we discussed the subject of the inspiration of the scriptures. <clears throat> and we found that the Bible sets forth what is called the verbal inspiration of the scriptures. That is, that God has so moved upon men that they spoke the words which God would have them speak, and that these words were to be viewed as God's revelation of himself to man. And so we hold to this. This is what the church is always held to, except in times of apostasy and declension which is an age in which that characterizes this particular age, is certainly one of departure from the view that the Bible is the inspired word of God. But if the Bible then is the inspired word of God, what's the main significance of this? If we really say, well, yes, pastor, I agree, and I believe that, and my folks believe that, and my grandparents believe that, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, what is the main significance of believing that? Does it affect any, anything else? Or can we sort of take it and leave it? Well, it certainly is significant that the Bible is the infallible word of God because it means that if that is the case, then the Bible is an infallible authority, since it is the spoken word of an infallible God. If God can make no mistakes, and he is infallible, and he has given us his word, then his word is infallible, and that means we have an authority in which that we must subject ourselves unto. And this is most significant. In the Bible, we are confronted with God. And to hear the scripture with the ear is to hear God when he speaks. It is not just the hearing a man. It is not just the hearing of a minister or a teacher or whoever that it might be that might be reading the scripture. But if the Bible be the inspired word of God, to hear the scripture is to hear God. And I think that that is important upon us not only that as I view from the standpoint as, uh, as a teacher of the Scripture, but it also should bear upon you as a hearer of Scripture. That is, that whenever we hear the Word of God expounded, let us look and compare Scripture with Scripture, and if it bears out, then it is God speaking, you see. And that means that we have to give an account of what we hear, as well as the speaker, for what he says. The leading reformer, John Calvin, said that this is a principle, that is, the inspiration of the Scripture, which distinguishes our religion from all others, that we know that God has spoken to us, and we are fully persuaded that the prophets did not speak at their own suggestion, 
but that being organs of the Holy Spirit, that they only uttered what they had been commanded from heaven to declare. In other words, this is the one thing that distinguishes our faith from other faiths. That is, we believe that when the prophets spoke, and through the Old Testament prophets and through the New Testament apostles, that it was God which was speaking. And this is a distinguishing factor of Christianity. To reject the authority of Scripture is to reject the authority of God who gave it, of Jesus Christ to whom it points, and the Holy Spirit who inspired it. Now, we have uh, many today, and you might be wondering, well, why is this so important, Pastor? You go across the land today into the various churches of all denominations, Baptist included, and it is amazing how many people you find that will confess that they, with the lift, that they are a Christian, but will equally confess they do not believe the Bible to be the Word of God. And, beloved, that, that cannot be. You cannot be a Christian and deny the Bible as being the Word of God, because the authority that the Bible bears, if you reject that authority, then you reject the authority of God who gave it, and you reject the authority of Jesus Christ to whom it speaks about and points to, and you reject the authority of the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures. Jesus himself declared, the Scriptures cannot be broken. This is a, this is a fundamental doctrine that we all rises and stands on the authority of the Scriptures and how that we view that authority. Well, now, how far does the authority of Scriptures extend into the various areas of life? That is, if the Bible is inspired, into how many areas of life does it affect you and me? And we answer this, it extends to every area of life. We cannot just pick out the portions of Scripture which we like and which uh, that we're sort of prone to say, well, we can get by with that and then reject other portions of it. All of the scriptures speak to all areas of life. And God help us to realize that he has given us a word, and that word has an authority to speak to the issues of today. And oh, what the issues are confronting the modern church, with all of the problems confronting of whether here uh, with this issue and that issue, the issue of, um, of the um, abortion issue. Does the Bible have anything to speak on that? Or are we without any word? Uh, the issue of women preachers, which incidentally is a growing issue within our movement. Does the Bible have anything to speak on that issue, or is it silent? And many, many issues that are confronting our churches today in which that it seems like to hear most ministers say there's just not any word from the Lord. But yet the Bible does speak to these important issues. It speaks to every area of life. All things are be, to be subjected unto the authority of scriptures. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. So that everything which takes place in life is to be subjected unto the authority of this book right here. 
And when it speaks, then we are to listen to that authority. We are not the authority on the scriptures, but the scriptures are our authority. And we must recognize that. Now, I want to cover two areas this morning in which that this authority of scripture covers in dealing with issues here and throughout the world. And that is the first issue, the authority of scripture and the nature of the church. What is a church? What right do we have to call ourselves a church of Jesus Christ? Where did we get that authority from? And does the Bible have anything to say about that? Yes, now let's get our Bibles and go through some text here. Turn to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. The first time that Christ makes mention of the term church, which simply means assembly, in Matthew 16, verse 18, And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now turn to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18 and beginning, and I believe it is verse 16. Verse 16 of the 18th chapter of Matthew, speaking of the individual discipline within the church. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and as a tax collector or publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, I want us to note that what constitutes the basis of the authority of calling ourselves a church. We go back to Matthew 18 and we find that Jesus set forth upon the confession of Peter, he would build his church. And he set forth that where two or three are gathered together in his name, that is, they have subjected themselves unto the authority of his teaching. That is, they recognize his word as being the supreme authority. Christ says, there am I in the midst of them. So what is a church? A church is a group of people who have submitted themselves unto the authority of Scripture as being the word of God. Turn now to Matthew chapter 28, and here we have the basis of the Great Commission. Christ now has ascended, or rather he has risen from the dead, and now he's going to send forth these apostles into all the world. He says in verse 18 of the 28th chapter, And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power, or authority, is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things, now note, whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world or the end of the age. So now he says here, gentlemen, I have all authority is now given unto me. 
you go forth and teach what I have taught you. And what you're teaching will bear with it a divine imprint of my authority. When you go forth and you teach what I've taught you to teach, you're just not dealing that individual that you're going to be ministering unto is not just going to be accepting or rejecting you. They're going to be either accepting or rejecting the authority of my words, which I have spoken. Now, wherever we find the word of God purely preached and heard, and the ordinances duly administered according to the institution of Christ, there is a church of God. Now, an acknowledgment of the authority of God's word is the only guarantee that a church will remain a church. Now, what do you mean by that, Pastor? If this church, which is, say, it's, what, almost a hundred years old, it was organized on the authority of God's word. But, ladies and gentlemen, the moment this church rejects the authority of God's word, it ceases to become Christ's church. It may still bear the name out here on the building. It may still have all of the classes. It may still have all the individuals. But the moment that it rejects the authority of Scripture, it ceases to become the institution of Jesus Christ, and no individual owes any allegiance to that institution. That's what happened to, bank to, the, uh, to the institution of Judaism. It rejected the authority of Christ when he came. And that's why that we do not worship as Jews today, but we worship under the authority of Christ. And to reject the authority of Christ is to do exactly what the Jews did in Jesus' day. And therefore they're set aside, and now he's turned into all the peoples of the world. So the moment that any individual or any church ceases, to acknowledge the authority of the Bible as God's holy word speaking, that institution or individual ceases to have the right to call themselves a church of Jesus Christ. In other words, the church is where the word is, and where the word isn't, the church isn't. Martin Luther said these words, the church are the lambs that hear the shepherd's voice. And I like that. In John chapter 10, in verse 4 and 5 and verse 16, Jesus emphasizes that my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and they come at my call. And suppose that we might illustrate this in this particular fashion. What right, again, do we as a group of people have to call ourselves a church of Jesus Christ? Let me illustrate like this. Let's suppose that I go down here and there was an empty street corner, which there happens to be in our community, and I decide that I'm going to erect another service station, and I'm going to call it the Standard Oil Company. And so I get some money and I go down there and I get the station all put in and I put up a great big sign which says Standard Oil Company. I'm now going to do business under the title of the Standard Oil Company. So we're open a few days and everything's going well, and then all of a sudden one day a great big black limousine pulls in, some very important businessmen get out, and they come and they say, we'd like to speak to Mr. Gables. And I said, yes, I'm, I'm the individual. Well, we're from Standard Oil Company, and we'd like to talk with you a few moments. I said, well, fine, come in here. We'll sit down and talk. And they begin to question me, and they say, now, Mr. Gables, we'd like to ask you a question. 
We notice that you have a sign out there which says Standard Oil Company. We'd like to ask you, where did you get the authority to use that sign? And I say, well, I tell you what, here's the way it is. My wife and I and family, we sat down and we thought it'd be a good idea there'd be a standard station here in this, in this city. And this city needs one. So we just decided it'd be a good idea. And one of those gentlemen says, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Gables, that isn't sufficient authority. Don't you have any more authority? Well, yes, I went to the mayor. And I got a permit right here from the city that said that I could build a service station here. And again, they shake their head and say, sorry, Mr. Gables, that does not grant you the authority to operate your station under the title the Standard Oil Company. We are representatives of the Standard Oil Company, and before any individual can have a business in any area, they must be authorized from headquarters. Well, that changes the whole story, because now I fall under the judgment of the authority. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when we come to ourselves as a church, what authority do we have to operate as a church of Jesus Christ? Who gave us that authority? Did just a few people meet and decide, well, it would be good if we had, had a Baptist church now here in Osceola, Missouri. Will that be sufficient? No, my friend, that's not sufficient authority. Well, wait a minute. Our denomination gave us the authority to have this church here, and still we hear back from heaven, not sufficient, not sufficient. The only basis for this church being a church of Jesus Christ is if it has subjected itself to the authority of God's Word, and God's Word has established the right for this church to be here. And the moment that this church ceases to obey that authority, it ceases to have the authority from God's book, and it's operating without proper authorization. So we must submit ourselves to the authority of the book. And we can look to the book and say, Here, God has said, where two or three are gathered together, under my authority, there I will stamp my approval upon that group of people. Now, where the Word is, the church is, and where the Word isn't, the church isn't. Now, the second area of life that we want to see that the authority of Scripture has and infects, and that is the relationship between the authority of Scripture and evangelism. What authority do you have to go to talk to anyone about Christ? Have you ever knocked on a door? I have and introduced yourself and said, I'm so-and-so, and I'm here to talk to you about Jesus, and have them say, well, who gave you the right to interfere with me? You ever had that happen? Well, who has given the authority for us to talk to anyone about the nature of the gospel? In Matthew chapter 28, we just read that Jesus said what? All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe whatsoever I commanded you. The authority we have of sharing the, go the gospel with others does not come from ourselves. It does not come from the church itself. It comes from the authority of Jesus Christ himself. 
And whenever that we talk to anyone about the nature of the scriptures and the nature of their soul, we have a divine authorization from the right hand of God, beloved. So that's why you just don't have to sit back and say, well, I'm sorry, I'm here today. No, you have credentials that you can pull out and show that by the authority of the word of God, you have a right and a responsibility and a duty to talk with individuals about the nature of the gospel. So the scripture authorizes evangelism. Now, the authority to evangelize then is a scriptural authority. The word evangel means good news. And the good news we are called upon to spread abroad is none other than the word of the living God. Although preaching still plays a significant part in evangelism, and this is sad to say, but the impression is often given today that confidence for the success of evangelism is really in other things. The more the time goes along, the more I talk with ministers and I listen and I hear them express the thoughts of their minds, and I read the writings in their books, I see that while they still give a service to preaching, more and more preaching is being side-placed and other things are dependent upon for the success in modern type of evangelizing. Now, what are some of these things? Here's a man who says, yes, I believe in preaching, but I believe that for Christianity to really succeed, it must be preserved by acts of law. That is, we must have an official church state, and many countries have this. That is, that the church is supported by the state. Then there are others who will make such issues out of fighting communism. That the only way that Christianity is going to succeed is if we destroy the evils of communism. And so while they still talk about preaching, they really believe that the main way that Christianity is going to succeed is in other things rather than in the preaching or the proclaiming of the scriptures as being the word of God. Then there's another group of individuals which talks about preaching, but they believe that the real success of the church is in meeting the intellectual objections of the unbeliever by rationalizing the faith to fit in with modern science. And so they feel that, well, the only way that we're going to have success for the Christian faith is if we approach all these intellectual objections that the unbeliever has out here we rationalize our faith to fit with his objections. And therefore, when we read about Jesus walking on the water, the rational mind cannot accept that. So we say that didn't really actually happen. That's not to be viewed as literally true. That's only a myth or a story that Christ was trying to relate some truth from. And so some individuals believe, yes, let's preach. But let's rationalize the Bible so that the unbeliever will accept it. And then there's a third group of individuals who are sincere, but they believe in preaching, but they do not depend upon preaching because they believe in developing new methods of communicating with the unbeliever. That is, they can't reach this unbeliever, so they've got to develop new methods of communicating with him. But, beloved, if we really take the authority of the scriptures seriously, our confidence for the success of our evangelism will be in God's word, 
not in these other things. The point of contact between the church and the world is the word of God, because nothing else reaches the unbeliever with more relevance and authority than the word of God. Let's suppose this man right here is an unbeliever, and I am an evangel bearer of the gospel. How am I going to make contact with him? We must come together. What am I going to use? And the Bible emphasizes that here is the means of contact between the evangel bearer and the hearer is the authority of the word of God. And when we depend upon any other thing other than that authority, we're only saying that really we don't believe in the authority of Scripture. In many evangelistic meetings today, the preaching of the Word, now you bear me out on this, some of you old-timers that have been here, and I'm not going to uh, elaborate on how old you have to be to be an old-timer, but uh, you figure that out. Do you remember back in the evangelistic meetings that had in years past, and you compare them with the ones that are held today and see if this statement is not a true observation? In many evangelistic meetings today, the preaching of the word is either being propped up or actually replaced by pop music, films, encounter groups, and sharing of testimonies rather than the preaching of the Word of God. Now, you look around you and you bear this out and see if many individuals today do not believe that the real success of modern evangelism is not in the preaching, but it's in these other things that are necessary to either prop up the preaching, and many are going and doing away with preaching altogether and just having people get together and share their testimony. Well, however harmful or harmless that these things may be, beloved, they are not the means that God has appointed for making contact with the unbeliever. It is through the foolishness of preaching that God has been pleased to save sinners. And every time that we become bogged down in other things, we're only really saying that we no longer believe that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But we've got our confidence in some other thing. Now let me illustrate this. How can I communicate or make contact with the, Molly, with the modern college professor? Now the individuals who are very much concerned in communicating with this person, they approach them like this. Listen, you ought to come to our church. We have three college professors on our board of deacons. You see, now what's the, are they depending upon the scriptures as a mean of contacting? No, they're trying to influence that man as to where he's at. By the fact that he is wise, he has a degree, we also in our church have individuals with degrees. And so rather than the point of contact being the Bible, the Word of God, it is the wisdom that's in our church makes contact with the wisdom that's in the world. And that's not the means that God has ordained. But that's the reasoning that's going on by many today. How do I contact a successful businessman? Here's a banker down here on the corner. We want to reach him with the gospel. How do we do that? 
And the average church today believes it's this way. We go down and we show him how fast we've grown, how many building programs we've gone through, how many loans that we've paid off. And then we also point out that one of our main Sunday school teachers is also a member on this on the board of this bank over here. And so then we make contact or communicate with that person on that basis. How do we communicate with the movie star? We go and then we tell them, listen, you ought to come and hear how our song leader can sing. Oh, you'd really like our service if you could come and just listen to the way he sings. So come and hear him. You see what we're doing? We're making the point of contact between all these various groups, not the scriptures, because we know that if we set forth the scriptures immediately, there would be an offense that would be there. And yet that's what God planned, beloved. If God had intended to make the gospel acceptable to the natural man, he wouldn't have wrapped his son in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. If God would have intended to make the gospel acceptable to the unbeliever, he wouldn't have hung his son on an old rugged cross and let him bleed there an ignominious type of death. No, my friend, the Bible says that speaking of Isaiah prophesying of Christ, in him there was no beauty that we should desire. The natural man does not look at the gospel and immediately desire that. And so the average church reasons today, well, if we're going to reach that natural man, then let's keep the gospel a little bit down until we can get him in and he likes a few other things. He finds out, well, here's some college professors in the church. Here's some bankers in the church. Here's some uh, movie stars in the church. And then maybe we go and we reach the hippie. And how do we reach him? We go down and we dress like him and we sing some of his songs, and then we reach him. You see, every one of these is an attempt to avoid actually making contact with that person right here with the authority of God's Word. And I think that it only sets forth that really the problems that exist in the modern church is that we no longer have a confidence that truly faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but we think it will come some other way. Now, I want to ask, ask a question and give an answer before we close today, and I think it's very important, so we ask you to listen carefully. How is an individual or an, an area to be evangelized? We're talking about evangelism. And when... Is this individual or area to be viewed as having been evangelized? Now, I want you to go very quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. How do we evangelize and when is a person or an area to be considered evangelized? 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. Now, thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Listen carefully. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other we are the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? I want us to notice, here's an evangel. He has a message. And the response to this message is that some, that message is a savor of life unto life, and to others it's a savor of death unto death. He says, who is sufficient for these things? 
But notice that we are the same Savior in them that are saved and in them that are perishing. Now bear that in mind. Now go to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And let's look how Christ sent out his apostles to evangelize and what he told them to do. Matthew chapter 10 and beginning in verse 1. When he called his uh, called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits, etc., to cast them out, heal all manners of sickness and disease. Now in verse 7, and as ye go, preach. Now that all sum it up right there. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now look down in verse 11. And into whatever city or town you shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy. And there abide till you go from, from there. And when you come into a house, greet it or salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it not be worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust off your feet. Now, you see that? Some is going to be a savor of life unto life. Others is going to be a savor of death unto death. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, he said he gave these individuals a message. You go and you preach. You compare this with Mark's account, and they went and they re- preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They had a message that they made contact with those individuals. And unto some, they received the message. Unto others, they rejected the message. But now listen carefully. The fact that an individual is evangelized is not conditioned upon his response to the message, but upon the truthfulness of the message presented. Now let's illustrate like this. Some will say today, well, when is a person evangelized? And an answer that will come forth, well, a person is not evangelized until he receives the truth of the message. But beloved, that is not true. That is not true. I can go throughout all of Osceola and we can preach the truth of God to every individual in this given community and have no one embrace the truth and yet this whole community will have been evangelized. But at the same time, I can use some of the so-called Gospels that are around today. I can get everybody in this community to become a member of this church and not evangelize a single person in this community. The result of how individuals respond to the message is not whether or not they've been evangelized. It is how the message is presented and whether the truth of God is set forth in the message. And unto some it will be a savor of life unto life, and others it will be a savor of death unto death. Who is then sufficient for these things? You go up to one house, if they are worthy and receive you in, and they embrace that message, then you rejoice in that. If they slam the door in your face, you shake the dust off the feet as a testimony unto them, and you go on somewhere else. But you will have evangelized that home or that city. Do you see that? Now, let's watch Paul as he evangelizes. Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 13, for our final text today. 
And let's watch if Paul viewed this as being the same type of evangelism. Acts chapter 13. Now let's notice the point of contact that Paul makes with the unbeliever and when he views an area as having been evangelized. In Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 15. And after the reading of the law and the prophets and of the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up. Now notice what is Paul going to do? He's going to have a word of exhortation. The means of communicating with these unbelieving Jews here is his word, the word of God. Then he begins preaching. Ye men of Israel, ye that fear God, hearken. The God of this father of Israel chose our fathers, etc., etc. And then he, re- he reviews all, nearly all of the Old Testament history of Israel. What's his means of communicating, Brother Powell? The word of God. Now then, go down in uh, verse 29. Verse 29. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, speaking of Christ, they took him down from a tree and laid him in a sepulcher. You see, beloved, and this may not, some may not understand this, but Paul was not sharing his testimony. Paul was setting forth an objective truth of what was happening in the Old Testament history and how Christ fulfilled that. He did not just share his subjective experience, what he'd experienced. He set forth the truth of God. Now, this is very important because many are just trying to reach individuals just by getting them to experience what they have experienced. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is what Christ has done on a cross, not just what has taken place internally within. He shared the Old Testament truth of God's word and how Christ fulfilled that. Now then, let's look in verse 32. And to declare unto you glad tidings how the promise was made unto the fathers. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, his children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, etc., etc., etc. Now then, go on down in verse uh, 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. You see how he's concluding his sermon? He's taking all of what has been said by God, and he's saying, now here Christ is the fulfillment of this. And by him all that believe are justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. What's Paul appealing to? He's appealing to the spoken word of God as the authority for the things which he is saying. Now then, in going on down, let's look at the result of this. Some believed, in verse 43, others, and the next Sabbath day, came together the whole city to hear the word of God. They did not just come to hear Paul's philosophy. What had happened to him, they came to hear the word of God expounded. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Now look carefully. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. It is necessary that we came and preached unto you. That was our duty. But since you now judge that you're unworthy of eternal life, we turn 
and we go to the Gentiles. Now, I ask you a question, did these people embrace Christ? And the answer is no, isn't it? I ask you another question, were these individuals evangelized? And the authority of God's word says, yes, they were. They were made responsible for their actions because they rejected the truth or the evangel which was given unto them. Now then, look in verse 30, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, and the word of God was published throughout all the region. And you see that? There's evangelism. When a region has been evangelized, it's when the truth of God is preached throughout that region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women, the chief men of the city, and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them out of their coast. Verse 51. But they shook off the dust off their feet against them, and came unto Iconium. In summary of these passages of Scripture, then we can learn at least two basic things. Number one. That the authority of God's word is the point of contact between the evangel bearer and the world. And secondly, that an individual or an area has been evangelized when they have been exposed to the authoritative truth of God in his word. May we forever hold to the infallible authority of the word of God. Let's stand together for our closing prayer.